How's it going, everybody? Thank you guys so much for chiming in for the latest episode of Believe in Queens. This is now episode 14 here for the show. Myself, Tyler Ward, you guys know me as Wardy NYM. And of course, with my beloved co-host, Anthony Recker, who is a current analyst for MLB Network and also Apple TV+. And normally we have Joe today, but Rec, as you can see, especially here on YouTube, if you're watching the YouTube form, there is no Joe Serralo today. Joe decided to take the day off. He's having a little family event meeting up with people. We, of course, were in attendance together in the first game of the three-game set of the Phillies series. So he's back in town when he normally resides in L.A. But I got to say, to not prioritize episode 14 of Believe in Queens or to pick his family wreck. I mean, come on. It, it is what it is at the end of the day. But, you know, things definitely could have been But Hey, now we know. I'm the only one. I'm the only one that has yet to miss an episode. So I, I don't know what else to say. All I got to say is I'm out in California right now visiting family. I'm taking time, uh, you know, out of my family time to be on the show <laughs> to make sure I make my appearance. I don't want to miss any more episodes. I'm here. Take, Joe, take notes. Take notes. That's all, that's all I got to say. But what I also got to say before we deep dive everything you guys need to know about this episode, not just a Philly series recap, another series, another series victory, as a matter of fact, taking a deep dive into the Brave series starting tonight at the time you guys watching and listening to this, including a potential, I don't know, Brett Beatty call up. We have a lot to get into, but before we go any forward, let's talk about today's sponsor. And of course, that being in Bet Online. Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports contests and events with first to market odds and lines. Find reviews for news for every league, including Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, NHL, combat sports, esports, and even golf. Bet Online continues to be the top online resource for all your sports information from live in game betting, props, and futures. So make sure to head to Bet Online today or use the mobile uh, device to join today and make your first sports bet. Use promo code BELIEF50 to receive your first 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet Online, where the games begin. And, Rec, let's let this podcast begin because. As I originally discussed, you know, Joe and I, we met each other for the first time at City Field back on Friday night. As I told you, I'm like 5'5 five, five on a good day. So having Joe, who's 6'4", come in to hug me, having to fully bend down with something else. We had a great time, no less meeting. We wish you were there, but we knew you were covering the game pre and post, obviously, for Apple. So I want to know, what, first of all, what was that experience like? How did everything go there? And then give me your quick rundown on especially that game one of that three-game set against the Phillies. Yeah, those Apple, you know, pre and post games that we do for the Apple Plus TV events every Friday, really fun. Uh, it's good, good TV. If you get a chance to 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 watch, you know, some of those outside of the Mets games, Mets fans, I suggest you tune in. We don't just cover the game at hand; we cover everything going on uh, throughout the league. It's pretty fun. Uh, but covering this Phillies Mets game uh, this week was was a lot of fun. It was a big matchup. Obviously, Scherzer on the mound for the Mets and a, and a big series for the Phillies and Mets. One of those ones you could kind of feel the energy, even from the studio uh, for Apple. Really cool, cool time to be there. Obviously, you and Joe were at the stadium. I'm going to go ahead and, and say maybe there was some kind of a, a bad luck mojo thing. With maybe the height <laughs> differences. I don't know what it was. Something. That picture, you guys, with the chains, you were rocking them. You looked great. But something happened and we didn't, we didn't, the Mets didn't win the game. I don't know what happened. It's pretty, especially with Max on the mound. I thought that was the one for sure we had on lockdown. Uh, it didn't turn out that way. Won the other two though. So, but that game itself was, uh, was a really fun one to watch. It was still a, a great game and, and we got a, a, you know, a series win out of these three games in Philly. Yeah, I mean, my initial takeaway for this game one was the fact that I brought my buddy Nick along with me. Now, Nick has never attended 
an MLB game before. He's not a sports fan at all. And heading to the game, he said, you know what? Like, I was concerned that maybe he'd be bad luck. And normally, and he's like, normally I am bad luck without even trying to be. So, Nick, I love you, buddy. I don't expect you back at City Field anytime soon. He had a great time, especially when Diaz came out in the ninth and the non-save. He was losing his mind. He's never witnessed a reliever to Diaz's caliber at all. So, he's like, oh, my goodness <laughs> gracious. He's going left and right freaking out about this. As did I, just hearing the trumpets is always great. But you're right. You know, I've seen Mad Max multiple times in person this year. And maybe Joe's bad luck, too. You know, if there's one game from LA stay in LA maybe good things will happen if that is in fact the case but Mad Max absolutely shoved in this one he wasn't the reason why the Mets lost in this game let alone the entire series for the most part was pitchers duel after pitchers duel after pitchers duel right you had Max going seven strong gave up that one and run because Alec Bohm who's been red hot for a good portion of the season now got himself an RBI base knock in the first and not long after that however the Mets just they were looking very Phillies-esque for Keith Hernandez, who did not want to cover the Phillies in the series because of their bad fundies. The Mets really looked like the Phillies defensively in large parts of that game one. It was kind of hilarious how reverse roles they were. You saw Eduardo Escobar botch two different plays at third base. The one he was running into, so I understood a little bit more. The second, it was hard to defend. And then he was out of the game, and I was like, did Buck really just sit this guy after some bad defense? That ended up not being the case. Had some side tightness, which makes a lot more sense. You saw there that the Mets would change their alignment. Gourmet would be in at third. But then right towards the end of the second, after the Mets would get themselves their first run of the day, thanks to Mark Canna with an RBI sack fly, I'm, you know, I'm sitting in 111, right? So I have a good vantage point of the first baseline. Jeff McNeil, I have no clue what Jeff is doing. He just completely drops right in front of Reese Hoskins. I was yelling there like, I was yelling, Jeff, what is going on here? He looked a little uncomfortable when he got up. And then he's out of the game. You know, we see Mark Canna looking like he's switching with Naquin. I'm like, okay, is Canna hurt now that Naquin's going to left? But you see Canna go away, come back out, maybe with a different glove. I'm not sure. And he he tried. He tried the infield glove, and it just wasn't fit. It wasn't. He wasn't feeling it. Gotcha. So he went. He went back out with that outfield glove. He's like, yeah, you know what? I'm just gonna wear it. I'm just gonna go with it. Just wing it. So I'm looking at Canna. I'm like, we're really playing Canna third right now. Okay. So Jeff who needed a couple stitches after getting stepped on by Reese Hoskins, Cleet after that, whatever that was, down first in the second. You see Canna at third. Now, Mark Canna is versatile. Thankfully, he plays all over the infield. Has only played a couple reps of third at the MLB level his entire hey, career. So, Hey, Tyler, Tyler. What? There have been worse third basemen to play in the Mets uniform. Um, <laughs> right here. When was, last got- time, when was the last time? Do you remember the last time you played third for the Mets? I only played there for one inning against the Phillies. I think it was 2000. I think it was 2015. How poetic uh, that was the Phillies, no less. It was. Yeah. How about that? And of <laughs> course, uh, who was the, who was their leadoff guy at the time? Um, little guy. Uh, oh, uh, Torres. No, no, that was with no, the, the lefty, the lefty. Oh, um, um, I'm blanking. Gosh, outfielder, Ben Revere. Of oh, course he's yes, up that inning. Familia's yep. on the mound trying to close it out. And I, David slid into second the inning before. It was the ninth inning. He he had to come out of the game. His back tightened up on him. And Bob Garen was the manager because TC had already gotten tossed earlier in that game. <laughs> so he's like, hey, Rick, can you play third? I was like, heck yeah, let's do this. <laughs> Threw me out there at third base. I got to go out there and pretend like I knew what I was doing for three outs. And, hey, we got the win. I had a 1,000 fielding percentage. Nothing got hit to me, which is, you know, good. So, and, and it was great. So, so Marcana, a lot more experience than this guy out there. So I was I was feeling good about Canna being out there. I was like, yeah, this is fine. He's got this. It's no big deal. 
Okay, well, Rec, from one gold glove third baseman to another, now in Canna, he was perfectly fine at the position. Let's be honest. It wasn't really a detriment to the Mets here. A detriment was really facing Ranger Suarez in this one. Outside of some poor uh, defense that you saw that the Mets had bad fundies, Keith was probably watching from home thinking, what is going on here? The offense just wasn't there either. You know, the Mets went back to kind of their first half ways against lefties. Endless ground outs. I mean, God forbid the Mets hit it out of the infield. It just was not happening much in that game and you have I will to get... say I will say I'm sorry Todd I don't mean to interrupt you no, Scott no, Barry had a big zone he had a big zone that whole game and you could see look Max got a few pitches but so was Suarez and early on that that's that strikeout looking to Pete that ball was in off the plate there were several and the same it was always on the edges uh he wasn't given low he wasn't given high but on the edges really to both sides but really that inside to righty away to lefty he just kept giving over there, and and to be honest with you, both pitchers were able to take advantage of it beautifully. I would say when you, if you go back and rewatch that game, I did. you yeah, know why point. it was a one to one game going into the extra innings and the two to one final. Like I mean, he had a pretty big zone that night, and that makes it tough on hitters when you start to see a zone get expanded a little bit. And you're used to your your zone, you know where it is. You have to control that zone. If you start going outside of there, you know, yeah, I hear people on TV, all the, oh, it's close enough to swing at it with two strikes. No, it's not. If it's not a strike, I'm not swinging because there's a 95% chance I'm out. That's just silly. Not going out of my zone, staying in my zone. So that was really a tough one for Mets hitters, for Phillies hitters, for the, both sides that night. See, I'm glad that you brought this up because you're 100% right. But, Sue, you said you're not swinging, right? So I want to ask you, as normally when you see a two-out situation especially and say it's 0-2 on the count, are you? what is your plate approach? Is it any different than maybe guys that you had as teammates back in the day with the Mets where you're saying you're not swinging regardless? Are you going to just take it because you know that there is naturally a stronger likelihood of you striking out if there's a close pitch with a count like that, especially down the stretch in a game if, say, it's going to make or break a win or a loss? Yeah, I think approaches all go down to, to the hitter. I think they vary, and that's okay. Uh, for me, I wasn't talented enough to be swinging at balls two, three inches off the plate consistently and thinking that anything positive was going to happen. I had to control the zone. That's how I survived at the big league level. That's how I knew I was going to make any money if I was going to make any money at all. Um, and that was really my game. That was uh, my game anyway. Coming up, I I I didn't like to take walks, but I like to be aggressive to pitches I – I can do damage on, and I know I don't do damage on those pitches. So it's pointless for me to go after them because realistically all I'm doing is setting myself up for failure. I'd rather take that pitch, assume that it should be called a ball, and move on an account with a better shot at doing damage, waiting for that mistake, and that's really my idea. Some guys, look, you get guys who have great back control, who can go out of the zone, who can still square balls up like that. By all means, go ahead and do it, but that's not really Pete's game either. Pete's not the type of guy who needs yep. to be – going outside of the zone, trying to do anything. And you could say that about a lot of these Mets. Mark Canna is very similar. Brandon Nimmo, of course, is very well known. They're not trying to walk. You're just trying to control the strike zone and control where you do damage. And then that leads to walks and it leads to getting in good counts and getting mistakes and driving those baseballs, which is obviously what, uh, you know, what I tried to do and what I think a lot of very good hitters try to do. I'm not trying to say I'm a very good hitter, but I am saying that that is the idea, that's the approach, and that's the mental side of the game that hitters are trying to, you know, go up there with to try to make sure they have successful ABs.
Rec, I know you're not selling yourself short when you literally have like a thousand on base and average against Max Scherzer for all people. So let, let's pump the brakes a little bit. But it was great to hear your perspective because, again, it really does vary on the hitter, as you mentioned. And now pivoting back here to this Mets game to wrap up game one, you know, we're getting ready. We're looking like the Mets are in a great spot here to finally get the run there in the ninth as we fast yep. forward. And Joey Cora, I love Joey to death. He has been great at times with his play calling at third, but by no Mets fan whatsoever was in favor of even Starling Marte running there from yeah. third. It was way too shallow. I mean, every, yep. I can only imagine what reactions were at home for everyone because the stadium, we were just all in disarray. We were all just jaw dropped that that transpired. And then unfortunately, that ends up being the out of the inning. And then the Mets would go on to lose in the 10th with Alec Bohm being the story of the game again, getting himself an RBI sack fly. And then Tomas, you know, missed it on the throw, which was a great throw by Martin, right? Just couldn't handle it. And then David Robertson, of course, it's David Robertson, the man that the Mets had plenty interest in lean up to the deadline. He goes to the rival in the Phillies and he ends up shutting the Mets down there in the 10th and that'll do her. But we saw game one. It wasn't going the Mets way. Give credit where credit's due. Even when they expanded strike zone, the Phillies pitchers game to pitch. And Ranger Suarez was an absolute stud, all things considered. Their bullpen got it locked down. Michael Givens was in an unfortunate situation. He didn't even do anything wrong and ended up being the guy that ultimately gives up that ghost runner in the end. But that would be the only final runs you would see from the Phillies in this series. Because as we pivot a game to wreck, Jacob DeGrom. I mean, we expected this. I jokingly said in our last episode of the pod, is he going to get 15 strikeouts? Is he going to be on the lower half of 10? Like, what's it going to be? And he ends up with 10 over six, two hits, 76 pitches, and retires at one point in the game, 16 straight batters. Now, as amazing as that was for Jacob DeGrom, Aaron Nola was not far behind him whatsoever. Aaron Nola came to shove as well. Eight strong, four hits, one earned run, which was the RBI opposite field by Pete Alonso in the first inning. The only run of this game. If you score in the first, you were ultimately the winner in this series. That's why it ended up being the case here. Alonso was 97th RBI of the year to right to Castellanos, and that gets a runner home with ease. And then the Mets, they just had nothing going. Aaron Nola absolutely shoved eight strikeouts. But again, thankfully, in a game where normally Jake's only getting one run, he's probably getting no decision on the loss. This actually goes the Mets' way for a change. So, Rec, what was your biggest takeaway from what was a masterclass of a pitching duel between these two great starters? Uh, I mean, look, when you talk about what Jacob DeGrom was doing, we saw that for five and two-thirds, his, the, the previous outing, uh, where he was perfect. And he came out and basically delivered the same performance again. It was unbelievable. The slider in this outing, I can't tell you – how unhittable it was unhittable last outing it was better this outing the tunneling he had between his fastball and that slider and the way that that slider looked like a strike three quarters of the way to the plate and the movement he got late it it was something how can you I just I can't even put it into words at 93 94 95 that slider was moving so much though I felt I almost felt bad for those Philly hitters they had zero chance not only to hit it, but to even take it because the fastball is coming in at 100 and the the slider was coming out of his hand exactly the same way. It looked like his fastball, like I said, two-thirds, three-quarters of the way, and then it's diving out of the zone. It, it was really just – I mean, it was unfair. And that's really what we've said about DeGrom for the last couple of years, you know, several years. It, it What he's doing now when he's healthy and he's out there on the mound – it is completely unfair. And Aaron Nola, I mean, look, you talk about this guy 
he's th- he doesn't throw like Jake. He doesn't throw 100 by any means, but he's got a nice repertoire of pitches, that big, slow curveball, the fastball that he moves around. He can throw the four-seamer up, or he spots that two-seamer in and out very well. He's got a slider, changeup. Just the way he goes about his business, I, I love watching him pitch because – realistically that's pitching to me you know when I watch someone who can't overpower people but can still dice up a lineup and what the other thing I will say about this game is Pete going to right field for that RBI how many times have we seen that this year that is a new Pete Alonso I mean he's done it in the past don't get me he's wrong so well right now yeah he's look he's always been able to go to right on occasion right you know oh you know there's an RBI I'm, I'm gonna try to go to right he does it so often this year. It is truly, he's on a completely another level. He's taken a big step forward in his progression as not just a major league hitter, but as an as a run-producing machine for this New York Mets team. Because anytime someone is in scoring position, if he sees an opportunity or he knows that the right side of the field is there, he takes it. He says, Yeah, I will take I'm not gonna try to hit a home run. I don't need to hit a home run. I need to get this run in because I got my guy Jacob DeGrom on the mound. And then Edwin Diaz coming in late in the game. We're good. I just need this one run. And he goes and gets it. That is really, really impressive stuff from Pete. And the kind of stuff that you love to see out of a guy who can hit 50, 60 home runs. That's it's just really says so much about who Pete Alonso is. I think when you look at Alonzo first coming in the league, right, you know, shocking the baseball world by breaking Judge's rookie record over 50 bombs, easily over 100 RBIs, a nice, decent average. You know, dealt with some struggles we saw there in the short 2020 year. And then, of course, last year had a strong season, but again, still had some ups and downs. I think the most impressive thing for me about Alonzo is to be at such a high early in your career. But let's not forget the baseballs were different in his year one in 2019. They are not to the same extent than what they are now with flying out. Now, there's been a nice uptick of offense here in 2022, which is great for the viewer for sure and for all the offensive batters. But for Alonzo, when you look at how much has changed already in the game of baseball in a short time, and for someone that had such a high, naturally it's not easy to either overcome that or come close. And Alonzo, even though, yes, he's not on the 50 home run pace, I would argue that this is easily the best Pete Alonzo we've ever seen with his ability to run as a scoring position, especially in those clutch moments. And, of course, as you emphasize, that ability to spread the field opposite field. That's something that I always appreciate most about hitters. That's why, again, for me, one of my – favorite Mets uh, players growing up, especially your teammate, Michael Conforto. I love Michael's ability to spread the field, you know, his prime days. And I'm seeing more of that now with Alonzo, which is so encouraging about his progression as a young dominant hitter, easily one of the best, if not the best power hitter in baseball since he arrived in the league. The home runs will tell you that that is in fact the case, but I want to ask you quickly before we get into game three, you know, I, the first thing that pops in my head when you talk about Jacob DeGrom and his arsenal is actually what I've heard plenty of times from one of your coworkers from MLB Network, that being in D-Row. And when you discuss, you know, seeing a fastball especially, it's like you have literally like zero time for it, especially if it's 95 upwards of 100. It's in a blink of an eye, let alone getting a slider, 94, 95, down and away or down and end, depending on if you're right or lefty batter. So from your vantage point, with the experiences that you've had, either to that degree or similar, I got to ask, what is just that experience like? Because again, you have such little time to make something happen there. You have a release point by Jake that's identical, the fastball and the slider, but one is completely wiping away far down and away. It's stupid. It makes no sense. He's doing things better than MLB the show, the video game right now. And I really don't think that's Mm -hmm. much of an argument. So let me hear your thoughts on that, Rick. 
Yeah, look, when you're facing a guy like Jacob DeGrom, there's not much um, that you can do realistically. And it's that's why that's why we say as hitters or, or as, as professionals, um, it's unfair. It's unfair what this guy can do with a baseball. Uh, when you talk about a guy throwing 100-plus miles per hour with that fastball and the fact that it looks the same as the slider, when you break down a pitch as it's coming in, you, you basically have three-tenths of a second to do three things. Pick up the baseball, figure out what the heck it is, and then decide if you're going to swing at it. So you have to, in that first tenth, you know, first tenth of a second, first third of the way to home plate, it's find the baseball. Just see it. That's all you're trying to find it. That next tenth of a second is, okay, figure out, is this thing a fastball, a slider, a curveball, a change, whatever it is. I mean, you got to pick up the spin. You got to figure out what it, where it's going. Okay. And in that last tenth, you get a chance to basically say, Swing or don't swing. And when you have a guy throwing 100, 102 miles per hour, that window that I just said was three-tenths of a second, it shortens. It's shortening. It's shortening. Plus, he gets that extension. It looks faster than it is. Perceived velocity is a real thing that these you know, front, office, front offices talk about. That gives you even less time, less time to make those decisions in your head. And, yeah, these are all more instinctual things that happen. But even as a professional baseball player – you're starting to see more guys throwing 100, but not many of them have the slider that Jake has at 93-94. So you're talking about a pitch, and the way he holds it, the grip that he uses, it's almost a cutter grip, but he's got such long fingers, such great uh, hand action, wrist action, everything, that when he releases the ball and it comes off his fingers, it doesn't really look, it doesn't have that big dot that you see on some sliders. It looks more like a fastball. It's got more of a cutter spin to it, which is hard to pick up, especially as a righty, but even as a lefty too. As a lefty for the angle of the ball, you just have a little better view of the dot. But obviously we see these lefties aren't able to you know, hold up on it either. When he throws it down on their back foot, they have no shot. So realistically, when that fastball is coming in, as opposed to that slider, starting out, coming out of the same exact arm slot, coming out of the same you know hand position, and it comes out at 95 or 100, and you have to decide, is this thing a fastball or is it a slider? If you hesitate for a second and it's a fastball, I mean, it's already by you. There's no shot. You're hitting it. So as a hitter, you got to gear up. You got to be ready. I remember one of the best pieces of advice I ever was told about hitting was Justin Turner. It was after he went to L.A., we were we were playing against each other and we were just talking, you know, off side on the field. And he was like, hey, yeah, you got to be ready for the heater. You always got to be ready for the heater in. That's the timing. Your timing mechanism is heater in. I'm ready for the heater in. And then I make adjustments off of that. So if you're timing and you're timing, trying to time up this Jacob DeGrom 100 mile an hour fastball in, so you're getting ready even earlier, you got to make that decision so quick. Is it a, is it a fastball or is it a slider? And if look, you're going to have to kind of guess fastball most of the time because it's that hard and it's that hard to hit to begin with. And you, you're wrong, and you look like these hitters look. I mean, it's it's silly because they're swinging and missing this slider by a foot sometimes. I mean, it, it really looks comical. It looks like a video game. I haven't played any of the new, you know, MLB The Shows or anything. When I used to play video games, though, I can remember playing, like, MVP Baseball, like, oh, oh there you go. It's the best. It's some of the best games. <laughs> and I remember a little box used to show up in, like, the bottom right corner of, like, a quick swing re uh, replay, and it was in slow motion. And if you missed the pitch by like, you know, if you just took a bad swing, you'd see like the bat go and then the ball come or you'd see the opposite. You'd see the ball go and then the bat come. It was like <laughs> so bad. 
That's what Jake makes these guys look like. And that's what you feel like when you're at the plate and you have to make a decision on his fastball or his slider or his changeup. That's the fun part. He likes to throw his changeup too when it's on, when he needs it. Hasn't even really needed it since he's come back. It's incredible what this guy can do to you as a hitter. It's it's truly um, com- completely unfair. And it's funny because that guy in the back end, Edwin Diaz, he's doing the same thing right now to hitters between his fastball and slider. His little bit of bigger difference, 100 to like a 91 mile an hour slider, 92. But that thing is nasty, and he he can do very similar things with it. It's crazy to think that we're not far away from potentially seeing Jake go upwards of eight innings. And then, oh, yeah, you have another Jake as a closer who's fresh and ready to go for the ninth. That was Edwin there in game two, getting his 200th save of his career. You know, got in a little bit of a jam, a couple guys on base, but he got out of it unscathed. His family was in attendance still, which was great to see as well. Uh, So happy for Edwin. He has just been absolute money. He has like a 1.3 year ray on the year. This guy is actually being worthy of being discussed as a potential Cy Young candidate with the pace he's on right now is not far removed at all from Mariano Rivera's star-studded season back in 05, I believe. So as long as Edwin continues this pace, I mean, there's going to be a lot more recognition going his way. And yes, the trumpets are fun and entertaining, but he backs it up every single time he's out there. I think what was most impressive for me about Edwin there in game two was the fact that he came out and again, pitched the night before in the non-save, absolutely shoved two strikeouts, had that pop up then when I was in attendance, he's just absolute money. And so is the Mets and this entire pitching staff. And speaking of not scoring in game two, that was a story in game three for the Phillies because Chris Bassett, while he didn't go deep, which is what he would like to do, Bassett says, you know, I don't have the strikeout stuff normally, but I'm a guy that tries to eat as many innings as possible. Even though he gave the Mets only five, I think that Joe, if he was here, would appreciate his mental toughness because he absolutely grinded out these at-bats. And especially later in this one, in his final inning, the fifth, you had a couple guys in scoring positions, zero outs, and the Phillies do not manage a score run. I think that is a huge testament to how locked in Chris Bassett has been this season. He's now went get ready for this 24 consecutive innings without allowing an earned run. Trevor Williams that would come in for him in this game three. Two squirrels saying Trevor Williams only has a three-year ray and roughly 100 innings as a New York Met since he was acquired at last year's trade deadline. Talk about a steal in that trade in hindsight. Who would have thought that Trevor Williams would end up being the biggest piece of that deal right now for the Mets and not Javi Baez? But here we are. And now Williams has thrown 20 scoreless as well. So what's your takeaway from this big game three, this statement game. And again, I expected there to maybe not be a lot of offense. And this ended up being the biggest offensive game for the Mets against their former teammate, now foe and Zach Wheeler winning six, nothing. Yeah. Really big performance from the Mets offense. I love that. Uh, But realistically to me, it is Chris Bassett. It is Trevor Williams. It is this pitching staff, the starting rotation since July 24th, has the best ERA in baseball for starting rotations, and it's really not close. They've been utterly, utterly dominant. You just saw this series. They gave up one run in three games against a Philly team that was, I mean, look, they they struggled against Edward Cabrera the game before this. We talked about it in the last, but before that, they were hot. I mean, as hot as you can be. And this entire pitching staff, but especially the start, they just, the starters just shut them down. It was incredible to watch them and and Bassett himself going out there and battling for five innings and giving this team every opportunity to keep taking advantage and to keep going out there and putting up 
more good ABs off Zach Wheeler, Zach Wheeler, making him work, not letting him get deep in the game. We talked about that and how good this Mets lineup is. That's a guy, that's the guy who can go out, him and Nola both can go out there and give you seven, eight, nine innings. And they beat him up in this last game and really made him work hard. And I thought that was really impressive for Bassett to give him that five, for, for Trevor Williams to come in. By the way, I faced that guy in the minor leagues. He was in the Pittsburgh organization with Tyler Glasnow, with uh, Chad Cool, with J- Jamison Tyone. He was a part of this five-man rotation they had. It was all guys who were clearly big leaders, who were clearly going to do great things. Um, Trevor Williams was, at the time, 94 to 96. He had a sinker. He had a cutter. He had a slider, a curveball, a changeup. And I thought he was maybe the best out of all of them. Obviously, his velo has dipped since then. He's not the quite same, you know, quite the same pitcher he was then. You've got guys like Tyler Glass now, who when he comes back, they're elite, elite. But mm-hmm. I thought this guy was great. And when he came over in this deal, I knew the Mets had an idea in mind. Okay, this can be a nice fill-in guy, a nice middle relief guy, a guy if we need to start him, he can start. Very valuable piece to a pen, kind of like a Swiss Army knife type piece. Not quite to the level as like a Seth Lugo of a couple years because he's not as dominant, but I love what this guy can do and he can give you quality innings. He doesn't walk guys, which is huge. And look, he's got experience and that matters. He's got good stuff. He can go out, come at you in a, a plethora of ways and that's really important. So I love what this guy does. But most importantly in this game, it was really coming out and just making sure that we were going to take, the, the Mets were going to take another series from an NL East foe haven't lost one all year. They've won every one. The 16 straight, I believe it is now, 16 straight NLE series, uh, you know, this year. That's incredible. And, and this the way this team just keeps rolling through the NLE is really just something to behold because it's not something that, uh, you know, Mets fans are used to or just we you see in Major League Baseball right now. And to see the Mets, you know, almost looking, maybe they were a little fed up those first two games. Again, little to no offense. You know, they were tired of it. They look at Zach. They're like, yes, we know that Wheeler has some great stuff, but we've also seen him plenty. Let's try to tack on early. And just like the first couple games, as I mentioned, whoever scores in that first inning ends up winning the game. That held true here, too, with Francisco Lindor breaking Jose Reyes' team record with his 82nd RBI of the season with roughly 50 RBIs ago. I raved about him enough in our last podcast, so I'll leave it short here. But, I mean, Francisco Lindor, just what a monster season he's been having for the New York Mets and putting the Mets out early. And, again, the Mets would continue to tack on. And it was hilarious, Rec. And I want to know your thoughts about this before we get in the Braves series because it goes in hand with Spencer Strider, among others, I've shared comments. I'm listening to the radio. I'm listening to broadcasts, and it's it's the same thing over and over again. It's the lucky hits. Oh, you know, I don't want to make excuses, but the exit velo was between, you know, 70 and low 80 on every single hit. You saw the Mets in the fourth. That's where they did their most damage. Mark Hanna, with two outs, comes up clutch, was the only Mets hitter in this game. Today, at the time of us recording this, with two hits, at least among all hitters, have himself a two-out RBI uh, oppo single. Luis Gourme with an oppo RBI single. And James McCann with a bloop RBI single. Unfortunately, Gourme would be injured right at the bases. He ended up leaving the game with a tight and groin. And then you would see there Jeff McNeil, great awareness because of some bad funnies by uh, the Phillies. You see Marsh there in center, bobbles the ball, then throws it softly to the cutoff man. Jeff's like, okay. He bolts home. He gets there in time. And the Mets end up putting a four-piece on those Phillies in the fourth and then a Daniel Vogelbaum in the sixth because, of course, he does. I don't think you can argue the exit veal on that one. But the (laughs) emphasis here on the, the luck, for me personally as a Mets fan, 
I love this. I love that you don't just have broadcasters. You don't just have fans. You even have opposing teams saying that they're kind of fed up, you know, that they're getting these lucky hits. Because in my mind, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, if your viewpoint would be any different, if a team is under this mindset that's all luck, naturally they're not going to adjust their game as much. And that could continue to be in the Mets' advantage here and continue their play style. You know, they're putting the ball where it ain't. It's as simple as that. It doesn't matter if it's 100 on the exit velo with Alonzo with a liner or if it's some soft loop contact, the Mets have done it all year long. And you would imagine that these casters that are four divisional rival clubs would understand by now that this is nothing new with the Mets this season. But again, uh, you know, I, I digress. So Rec, going to you here, what's been your take on seeing again, all these rivals just not comprehending that the Mets are just somehow, some way always putting the ball in play. And maybe just maybe it's a little bit more than luck. 115 games now into the season. No, absolutely. Look, when you're on the opposite side of this, when when it's happening to you, you have to come up with a logical way to stay sane, to not, you know, beat yourself up about it. Because realistically, it, you're not getting beat in the sense that guys are hitting balls out of the ballpark or driving balls off the wall. But it's easier when that's happening to pinpoint what you're doing wrong or what's going wrong. When it's happening like this, when when Guys are able to just get the bat on the ball enough and find holes, which, look, I remember coming over to the Mets in 2013, and I that was really like the only season I got to play, full season with David Wright. I, the other 14 and 15, he was injured for parts of the year, and I didn't get to play full seasons with him. I remember thinking to myself, man, this guy hits a lot of bloopers to right field. I couldn't believe it. I was like, the, I, like but he still drove the ball out of the ballpark. He still hit doubles. He still, you know, he still did everything that the captain does. And he had an amazing career. If he's not the best offensive med, he's certainly one of the best of all time. But to to watch him go through it and to for him to consistently bloop a ball, like over the second baseman, over the first baseman, down that right field line, it would be a single or sometimes a double. I couldn't believe it. I was like mind blown. And I remember saying to some someone at some point late in that year, you know, is this what he always does? Is this kind of part of his game? And they were like, yeah, actually, look, sometimes he gets beat, but he's a really good job of barring it off, fighting it off. And yeah, sometimes that ball finds the right field line. He's just really good at that. There are guys who know how to do things like this, and it's what keeps them. They don't strike out as much. They they find ways to put the bat on the ball, to put it in play, and to put it in play and get base hits. And that's okay. That's a part of the game. That's part of some guys' games. And the Mets have clearly made a point to put the ball in play a little bit more this year and make the defense have to adjust, make the pitching staffs have to adjust. You know, when you talk about guys who I'm just going to come up with the name, DJ LeMayhews, who have the ability to kind of inside out ball and just kind of shoot it to right field, shoot it over the infield sometimes. That's what they do. That's a part of their game. It's not luck. It's coming off at 80 miles an hour. But that's not luck. That's literally part of what they do. It's how they survive. That's like kind of like an instinctive swing on a pitch that they know they can't really, you know, do a lot with. And it bloops over, you know, the infielders' heads. That's what you're seeing from this Mets team. Sometimes it's a ground ball in the hole. Sometimes it's a blooper over the infield. Sometimes it's a, a swinging bunt that just kind of rides up the line. Whatever it is, they find a way to put the ball in play. And you're going to have a much better batting average on a ball you swing and hit rather than a ball you swing and miss with two strikes. That's just common sense. You're going to have a zero average when you swing and miss. You have a chance to get a hit if you put it in play. So realistically, that what this Mets team is doing and seeing these other teams react the way they are, I don't know. Like it's, it's clear that they're not making the adjustments that they need to make and understanding that this team is 
They're going to take what you give them. If you give them the right side, they're going to poke it that way. If you give them the left side to Jeff McNeil, he's going to poke it that way. This team's capable of doing that, and it's really impressive. And I think it goes to speak to, and we talked about this, Eric Chavez, the work that he's done, Buck Showalter as a manager, making sure not just that they have the idea in their head, but that they know that this is how we're going to do things and to get all the guys to buy into it. That's so huge when it comes to this kind of thing getting the entire team to buy into this guys like Pete Alonzo saying, yeah, I'm going to hit a blooper to right because I want to score that run. That's huge. When you get guys like that to make that commitment, that just means that that whole clubhouse is gelling and working together. And that just means that they're set up for, for success. It feels like more often than not, this Mets team is like two steps ahead. A lot of times yep. you see Buck doing a phenomenal That's job tough. managing. feels like he's doing laps around the opposing managers at times, just because of how in tune the Mets are right now, because Buck brings that, old school mentality with the game of baseball, which is important with, again, just putting the ball in play. It doesn't need to be the prettiest hit. If you put the ball in play, odds are there's going to be good things that happen more often than not. But they also have that balance of not just old school, but new school as well with the information, taking advantage again of the shift alignment by the opposing clubs. And again, not to go too far forward here on a tangent, it's going to be very interesting to see how this approach affects the Mets once the shift is gone next season, because we know the Mets have taken advantage of it a lot, both on the offensive side and on the defensive side of the ball, being one of the highest shifting teams in baseball. But getting aside from that point, let's now pivot into a big matchup. Of course, a four game set that begins tonight at the time of you guys watching and listening to uh, this more than likely against the Atlanta Braves. And look, the Mets, as you said, they continue to roll and dominate against Annalise opponents. And in case you're wondering just how good they've been, they're 38 and 15 against the Annalise so far this year. And over the past nine seasons, Rec, whoever, of course, wins the most games in the division against the rivals wins the division. So they're in a great spot. They have been consistently all year long and against the teams above 500 in case anyone wants to throw some slight down the Mets' way. They're 10 games above right around there, 32 and 23. The Braves this season against teams above 500 at this juncture, 21 and 26. The Phillies, 28 and 30. So again, yes, you can harp about the Mets getting these lucky hits, but at the end of the day, if you put the ball in play, I love your chances far more than having a high swing miss rate, which has been the story of the seasons for the Braves and for the Phillies with their respective offenses. But before we really deep dive this series, and I want to, uh, put a little asterisk. If this does not happen, then for people on YouTube, I have timestamps. Just skip over this section. But there was a report that came out over the past hour prior to us recording that got us excited. That's why he's on the thumbnail. If he's not, it's because I changed it because that means that he isn't being called up. But Mike Puma did announce that because of Luis Gourmet's injury, depending on how his MRI results are going to be today at the time you guys watching and listening to this, Brett Beatty is being considered as a call-up. Of course, he is the star-studded third-base prospect for the New York Mets. He was called up recently to AAA, in which he's been doing a phenomenal job there. As a matter of fact, Beatty, as we speak, is batting right around in AAA, uh, 364 with an 826 OPS, including one RBI in six games. He's raked all year long over 900 OPS, over 300 average. So, Anthony, I want to know what is your initial reaction to Brett Beatty potentially being called up here to the New York Mets. Do you think that this would be the right move if Gourmet is, say, on the IL? You know, it doesn't look like Escobar is 100% yet. And, I mean, if there's one prospect out there that I could confidently say that could impact this team right now without directly hurting his development, i got to say it's probably Brett Beatty. Yeah, I think what you need is a guy who, A, knows how to handle the bat, can handle that big league jump. And, and Brett Beatty, he's the type of guy who can take a walk. He knows – 
the zone very well. He understands his zone. Those are the kinds of things you look for in first in a, a offensive prospect that you bring up to, to make sure that, okay, even if he's not swinging it or seeing it great, or he gets a little excited at first, you know, he'll be able to handle things because he's not going to be going outside of the zone, put together good ABs. You could still stick them in the lineup. So he checks off that box. Then you check off the fact that this guy's exciting. I mean, he started off the year slow and he has absolutely caught fire. 19 home runs on the year, 22 doubles. He hasn't hit an extra base hit yet in AAA. Only been up for six games. Not a big deal. He's got eight hits, eight singles. That's great. But what I'm seeing from Beatty is that he is the type of guy who you could call up and know offensively, he's not going to he's not gonna be a hole in your lineup. And that's a big thing. Then defensively, you think about who else do they really have that they could bring up to play third base. There's not a whole lot of options, especially one who can give you something offensively. This guy can do it. Mark Vientos, I know that he can play third base, has played third base. It, you know, it's been said that basically he's just not that good of a defensive third baseman. So, yeah, I'd rather give this kid a shot. Brett Beatty, only 22 years old. He's gotten comparisons to guys like David Wright and others already in this minor league organization as he's played his way up. Uh, very high, you know, performance type guy, high character type kid has done a very nice job. I, I love the idea of giving him this opportunity. Of course, if Escobar was healthy, you would slide him over there, let him play for a few days, see what's going on with Giorme, and then make a decision. You wouldn't have to call it Beatty because he wouldn't play much. Well, if Escobar is not going to play for the next few days, which it, it seems apparent if, if they are going to call it Beatty, he's not going to be ready to play, then yeah. You're going to need someone to play there for several days and you're not taking away any of Beatty's time, you know, continuing to develop in AAA because he's coming to the big leagues and he's going to play every day. And that's what it comes down to. When he comes up, I expect him to be in the lineup every single day, get him out there, let him see what he can do. And you know what? Honestly, let him just get his feet wet because you never know. He comes in, puts together some great ABs, hits a couple homers. Who knows? Play some good defense. Now you start thinking, okay, yeah, September comes up October maybe he's a difference maker maybe he's a guy who's in the lineup maybe he's the type the type of guy that comes off the bench in certain situations who knows but you at least have him get his feet wet so that if you need him later he could be there and he could be a huge piece because he is a very big prospect 22 years old athletic kid uh you know they weren't sure if his power would really come and I gotta say the way he started off slow this year but the fact that he is 19 right now his power has arrived and he is doing some really good things in the minor leagues. And trust me, when I say this, that can translate. When you talk about going from, you know, certain leagues in the minor leagues up to the big leagues, sometimes it's almost easier in the big leagues. I know it's weird to say, but I played in the IL and AAA for, the, for, for one or two years with the Braves. And I promise you playing in that league and then coming to the big leagues, I thought the big leagues was easier than, than playing in that IL league. Um, the pitching was good and the ballparks were tough and the balls back then in the minor leagues were awful. So you couldn't hit it out of anywhere. So Beatty coming up, I believe he can put up similar numbers. And then you get the, you know, the fact that he's an athletic defensive type first baseman. That's huge. And I think that's what this Mets team needs from him right now. It's crazy to think that this can actually happen for the Mets because out of all the prospects that we've really discussed so far this year, either on the pod or just separately, you know, being Mets fans or following this club, is the Francisco Alvarez's, the Mark Vientos's. There hasn't been too much talk about Brett Beatty until this juncture, but you look at Mark Vientos, for example, Vientos is great. He's having a phenomenal year in AAA. He can hit, of course, for opposite field with the power. He's a big swing miss guy, has a high strikeout rate like Alvarez, but He's a guy that, again, is not an MLB caliber 
defensive third baseman right now. He just doesn't have it. That's from everything that I've seen. And universally, that is a belief right now. And to the point where Vientos' name isn't even being considered if this report by Mike Puma is holding true. Again, we'll see what transpires by the time you guys are watching and listening to this. But it makes a lot of sense. Vientos is a guy. He rakes against lefties with profile best as DH. The reason why he's progressed so well in the minor league level is not because of his defensive prowess, but is because of that offensive upside. So should he hit the Mets, you'd expect him at DH, but the Mets have DH covered right now. You have Vogelback, you have Ruff, you even have Naquin if you want them there. So they, they're they comfortable in that DH spot. Third base, however, Yorme, he's been able to handle the bat at third just fine and has a phenomenal glove, the best defender you could rightfully argue for the Mets right now. Escobar has not consistently had the bat, has not consistently had the defense either. And with both of these guys banged up right now, a Brett Beatty making a spark for the Mets Definitely feels like it could be feasible. And when you look at the team they're facing now in the Atlanta Braves, that's what they've been known for. So it would be great to see. You see the Michael Harris III called up this year, having his immediate impact. Now Von Grissom out of nowhere after Orlando Arcia goes down in the Mets series unless Grissom's first game when he only had a handful of games at his highest level this year being double-A. 21-year-old infielder comes in for Arcia. He hits a bomb outside of the Fenway Park goes past the green monster he's absolutely raking so far in a couple games in five games for vaughn two home runs four rbis a 389 average and 1000 roughly 300 ops now i'm not saying that brett Beatty would come in and do these exact same numbers but my point is that when you understand that you have a prospect that is consistently developing at each level and is not having a major setback the way that we did see what a guy like Francisco Alvarez this year still trying to get adjusted to that type of pitching at the AAA level. You look at Brett Beatty, it's it's no different with his swing. It's no different with his plate approach. He can spread the field, has some nice pop, is very athletic, far more defensively upsided versus the likes of Mark Vientos at third. I say call him up. I hope that they call him up, and if they don't, Again, it's fine. The Mets will bring him up at some point, either by the end of the year or surely he will be a candidate to compete for that third base spot as soon as next spring comes around for the Amazons. But yeah, Brett Beatty's an exciting prospect for the Mets. And should he be caught up, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if he's a spark plug. Again, a lefty bat that I just, the ability to spread the field, you you always got me. By the time you can well, do that to- when you're not solely relying on being a pole hitter, that I'm always satisfied as a fan. And not to mention, when you talk about, and when I think of, teams in recent memory or even the 15 team that I was on New York Mets teams that make runs in the postseason, they always have a couple of young guys that come up, whether it's early, you know, earlier in the season or very late and they make an impact. They make a huge impact. And we always talk about the clubhouse mix with the veterans and the young guys. I think it's a very important mix because the young guys bring the energy. They just have a different way of going about things that keep guys hungry and keep you fighting and keep you going. And, you know, at 15, it was Conforto came up, you know, kind of later in the year. We had Syndergaard who came up a little bit earlier in the year. And, of course, Steven Matz, who when he came on the scene in 15, was electric. So you could talk about those guys and the way they helped us down the stretch in 15, the way they helped us in the playoffs. I mean, that was huge. And that's the type of impact that you want to see out of prospects and that this Mets team really, I mean, they haven't had because they haven't had the prospects. They haven't called anybody up, really. Um, They haven't needed too much, but it would be really nice to see them get like kind of a little bit of influx of youth and some young guys like a Brett Beatty to come in, see if he does something. And if he can be a spark plug, you can ride that sometimes as a team for a month, two months into the playoffs, whatever. And I think it would be a really cool thing to see for a kid like this too, to get that opportunity would be huge. And it would really 
if he comes in and, and kind of shores this thing up, shores up third base, where does that put this team for next season knowing, knowing they don't have to go out and find somebody to play third base because Escobar hasn't necessarily been the answer there. And I don't think Guillaume is probably a long-term like, hey, we're going to start this guy at third base every day for the next 10 years. So obviously it, it would be a huge, huge weight off the front office's shoulders thinking that, okay, we don't have to really worry about third base right now. Yeah, we'll still have Escobar for a backup, but we got Beatty there and maybe he's ready to make that jump and be a full-time big leaguer. And on top of that, if Beatty does come up, you know, whether it's today or whether it's in the near future, then that would lessen the load off the shoulders of Escobar. Again, he's a guy that who necessarily knows how well he'll do coming off the bench down the stretch. We've seen him platoon for a little bit now with Gourmet, but he is a guy that has thrived against lefty pitching. So if he can really hone in on that, kind of the same way that the Mets have had Vogie hone in against righties and rough against lefties and Naquin against righties. Maybe you have some working magic there where the Mets just have more endless platoon options. It can never be a bad thing. The more depth, the better for this Mets team. And now pivoting into this Braves series, it's a big matchup because since the Mets last faced the Braves, the Braves, of course, haven't lost a game. They've won six straight. However, the Mets are eight and four against these Atlanta Braves. They're our rivals in the division so far this year. They've outscored them right around 55 runs of 48. So not a crazy difference, but the Mets have had the better pitching and had had the more consistent offense here. And this is a massive four-game stretch. You know, the Mets, they have a nice lead. Five and a half up right now, but we all know that this is reverse roles in this matchup. Say the Braves come out and win three or four. Before you know it, the, the division is once again up for grabs like no tomorrow. The Mets made a statement recently, of course, winning four or five in City Field. How are they going to do now in Atlanta, which they won their last series against the Braves, thankfully, two or three in Atlanta a month or so ago. But this matchup, game one, I want to know your thoughts here on all these pitching matchups. You know, you got Cookie and Strider. Spencer Strider is a story. I tweet out earlier today, this kid has to absolutely shove or he's not going to hear the end of it from all fans on social media after his remarks. I mean, let's be honest. You had the likes of Max Fried come out and even say that, you know, while there were some blue pits, you know, he still needs to be better, more effective. Strider, not as accountable. I think that goes again with the, a little bit of the immaturity as a young stud of a pitcher that he's been for the most part here in this 2022 campaign. But you get Cookie. He's 13-4, 3.76-year array on the year. Strider, 6-4, 3.11-year array. Difference. Cookie against the Braves, absolutely shutting the door. Below 2-year array, 2-0 uh, this year against the Braves. Strider in a couple starts, 0-1 with that 6.14-year array. So what's your takeaway on looking at this big series against the Braves and especially this Game 1 matchup? Yeah, in Game 1, I'm just going to go straight to that because, uh, to me, Carrasco has been so good pretty much all year for the Mets. I mean, very few bad starts, bad outings for him. Been very consistent. So I, I look forward to him continuing that against these Braves. And like you said, he has really pitched well against them. Now I go to the other side and I go to Spencer Strider. And this is an interesting one because, as you said, the Mets have seen him a couple times now. They've put together very, very good game plans against him. They have fought off pitches. They have made him work and work and work. And realistically, he hasn't been able to go deep at all into games. And that's the one thing you can say about this Spencer Strider whether it's against the Mets or others, he's gone deep sometimes, but oftentimes he's five innings, six innings type of a guy because he racks up strikeouts and he racks up a lot of foul balls. He's pretty much a two-pitch guy, right? He's got yep. the fastball and a slider. As, as a starter, that's tough to get away with because eventually guys are going to start just being able to, to get a piece of it, get a piece of it. And, you know, look, I just said this about Jake. It's amazing what he can do with two pitches. 
He's going 102, but that slider is a 95 mile an hour, like short, hard cut piece off of it. Like it's sometimes it gets bigger, but it's hard and it comes out exactly like that fastball. Strider has a little bit of slurve in his slider. It's got a little bit more tilt, a little bit bigger movement to it. So what that does essentially gets a little bigger as that gets apart. Hitters can see that it's not coming out like the fastball. It just has that little bit of lift to it. Oh, okay. Yep. Slider. You can just pick that up just a little bit quicker as a hitter. And when you can do that and you know that slider isn't 95, it's 90, 91, you know, 89, whatever. It just makes a little bit of a difference. And you have the ability. Now that difference in itself, the velocity is good for Strider. But as a hitter, when you can see the ball a little better, now you can pick it up and you can just give yourself that extra tick to wait on it. You could foul it off if it's a if it's a nasty pitch down in the zone, or obviously if he hangs it, you have a better shot at putting the barrel to the ball because you see it earlier. So that's the one thing with Spencer Strider. He doesn't quite have the ability to tunnel his pitches the way guys like Jacob DeGrom do. And because it's just two pitches as a hitter, I'm going up there. I know I can pretty much go up there and say, okay, I'm just going to look fastball this entire AB. And if he gets, if he gives me one and he makes a mistake with it, I can hit it. I'm a big league hitter. When you've got other guys on the mound that have more variety of pitches, you can't do things like that. So I look for this lineup to continue to do the same thing to him, to frustrate him, to make him work, to make him throw pitches. And then, yeah, if you get a couple bloopers because you're able to put the bat on the ball, so be it. Tough, tough beans there, Spencer. Got to be a tough one for you. Um, Look, this kid is really good. I can't say that enough. I love his stuff. He's got electric stuff. But the way this Mets team can battle, the way they can put the bat on the ball, the fact that they don't strike out like some other lineups, that really gives them a much better shot against someone like this just to make him work. And if they get into that bullpen early again in a four-game set, we said this last time with the five-game set, if they can get into that bullpen early in a four-game set, that sets up the rest of the series for this team. But they actually have some really nice favorable matchups with both Max and Jake potentially going in three and four. This Mets team is going to be awfully hard for the Braves to uh, to handle, especially if they can get get off to a good start in this first game. If they win this first game, it's going to be really hard for the Braves to win three out of four to win this series. So I, I almost expect at least a split, probably three out of four for the Mets, if they can get a, off to a good start in this first game. And you look at the remainder of these pitching matchups, and I got to say, for the most part, I'm taking the Mets here right now. With putting by side, just the Mets' ability to grind out at-bats. You know, this is without a Max Freed that ended up actually being concussed in his last start against the Mets. We saw him fall down, pitched a couple more, more innings. He was put on the seven-day uh, concussion list. And without Freed in this series especially, a guy that, again, the Mets have teed up on, but not nearly as much as Strider, as a Charlie Mordens, and even Kyle Wright of recent in the last matchup, you love the Mets' chances here because the Mets, they love grinding out there at bats. And also, a big test, though, in my opinion, the biggest game out of these four, in my opinion, is game two because of this pitching matchup. Now, the Mets are facing Charlie Morton, who they've done really well against this year. He's got an 0-2 record, a roughly eight-year ray against the Mets. He's 5-5, and 4.26 on the year overall. However, Taiwan Walker, 10-3, 3.43-year ray. Ty's had a phenomenal year, but that Braves matchup, easily the worst of his entire season, his worst of his Mets tenure thus far. Eight earned in only one inning, couldn't even get an out in the second inning against those Braves in the field. How is Ty going to look in this matchup? What is his mental toughness going to be? Are we going to see a tie that is calm, cool, and collected that can give the Mets, hopefully, 
five to six strong, maybe giving up only a couple of runs, keeping the minute? Or is this something where the Mets may need to go to lawn relief once more because he just cannot handle this Braves team for whatever reason? So, and Rec, in your opinion, what do you expect from Ty, especially here in game two? I really liked him see him switch up his repertoire a little bit. At times, he can get a little bit fastball heavy, um, whether it's the four seam or the two seam. Uh, I think with this Braves lineup, he just has to be able to command the zone with his with his off speed a little bit better. He has to be able to go at them with the slider, with the splitty if he needs to, and he's got to be able to mix it up just a little bit more in those in those big counts or or to start starting at bat, whatever it is, pitch these guys backwards, just mix things up that way. But look, Ty is not the type of guy who's gonna, you know, look at back, back at his a bad outing and think, oh man, I can't handle this team. No, he's gonna come out with extra motivation to come out and and really dominate you this next time out. And I look forward to him coming out and and throwing a very good game. Uh, I do like the fact that, you know, Charlie Morton has also at times the Mets have, the Mets have gotten to this guy at times this year. He is he has not looked like the Charlie Morton of the past. So. Uh, I think this is a good matchup again for the Mets, a plus matchup, even though, you know, Ty got beat up. I, I really look to the Mets to having uh, an advantage in this game and trying to exploit that. Now, again, Charlie Morton could show up with his, with his good curveball, And obviously with that fastball that can touch 97 at times. Uh, so you never know, but uh, I really like the Mets chances in this one. Yeah, that's a great point, too, because even though the Mets got shelled originally 8 nothing in that game, it didn't last long. They still battled. They still scored six run and made yep. a game of it. So even in the worst scenario here for game two, say hypothetically, Ty does get teed up a bit, say he's out in a couple innings. And the Mets are able to have that same approach like they did the last time where they were giving up a lot of runs early, something that they really didn't have in the first half, especially that month of June. It felt like when the Mets were getting blown out early that they were just out of the ball game. They didn't have that type of uh, depth offensively that they are now getting here in the second half against these big matchups like the Braves. So you're right. I mean, personally, from a pitcher perspective, I'm looking at Ty as the biggest matchup here to see what he can do in game two, but it's not to denounce the offense and their potential because we all know what the Mets are capable of. And same thing to wrap up the series for games three and four. You got Mad Max eight and two with a sub two year round the year. Again, phenomenal signing. Can't say enough good things about Mad Max. 2-0 with a 0.64 ERA this year. 20 strikeouts and 14 innings against the Braves. Biggest thing for me personally is that historically, Max Scherzer entering the season hasn't had the best outings consistently against the Braves. They have been kind of his nemesis at times in the NL East during his time, of course, with the Washington Nationals and even prior to that with his previous club. So Max has really taken his game to new heights. Looking at this Braves team, they know how sweet and messy they are. He's just pumping that slider left and right. And same thing with Jake. But Odorizzi is a matchup here in game three, four and four, 3.8 ERA. He gave up three earning, not even five innings against the Mets. Obviously, it's a favorable matchup for the Mets there pitching-wise. And game four, Jacob DeGrom, it's always the favorable matchup. 2-0 with a 1.62 year rate. Had 12 strikeouts, one uh, two earned runs because of the Dansby Swanson bomb and the 5.2 uh, innings pitch. Facing off against Kyle Wright and Wright 14-5 and with a 3.14 year rate. But Wright, similar to Spencer Strider, great numbers this year, but not when it comes to facing the Mets thus far. 0-2 with a 6.23 year rate, only has 7Ks in 13 uh, innings. So uh, what's your final takeaways from these matchups as well? Again, I, look, the Mets, you get Jake, you get Max back-to-back. How do you not like the chances of them at minimum splitting this one? Yeah, look, I, I don't I don't like the Braves' chances, I can tell you that. <laughs> um, to, to be honest with you, I think there's not much to say about it because these are games that the Mets know every time Max and Jake go out, 
They should be winning ball games. They should be winning these games. I think in the locker room, they know that. I think obviously we know that. And people around baseball, I think other teams know it's going to be a battle. They're going to have a tough time scoring runs on those guys. And they're those opposing pitchers that are facing off against that Mets lineup. They know they got to be basically perfect because if they're not, they're losing that ball game because that's how good Max and Jake have both been. Now, look, we don't know what could happen. You never know if that those lineups go out. They put together good ABs on Scherzer. They put together good ABs on Jake. Jake still hasn't shown that he can go deep into games yet. Obviously, they're still working it back slowly. But I, I just I, I can't. There's not really much else to say other than the fact that the Mets should win those two games. Doesn't mean they will. The Mets probably should have won that game, you know, with Scherzer on the mound against Ranger Suarez, but he pitched a great game. And like I said, with the umpire back there, it was really a tough game for the offense. So you never know what can happen. But again, I just, I look forward to these two dominating the Braves the way they did last time, both of them, the way that they were the last series and, and realistically giving the Mets at least the series split in the end, if not a series win, maybe even a series sweep. We'll see. The Mets had potential here, not just with the Braves, but also even with the Phillies, the the, the ensuing uh, weekend coming up. Yep. If the Mets perform the way that us fans expect them to, they could put an exclamation point on this series. Uh, not not series, but actually the NL East, rather, yep. once and for all. You know, the Braves, the Phillies, they've been trailing all year. Mets won three or four. They're really back then. Phillies, same thing. The Mets go in and at minimum split. You just know you're feeling comfortable about this team down the stretch as they eventually get into their easiest month of the year this September. So a lot of exciting things coming up for the Mets. This is a huge matchup. Probably their biggest series of the year left that we have right now, other than that three-game set against the Dodgers at the end of this month. But guys, that's going to do it for this episode of Believe in Queens. We had a lot of deep dive. We're really excited to recap everything that transpires in this four-game set a couple days from now. But until then, this is Tyler Ward, Wardy NY. Make sure to check me out on YouTube. As always, if you guys are watching on YouTube, the podcast, make sure to let us know in the comments below what is your biggest takeaway from episode 14 of Believe in Queens. Make sure to smash that like and subscribe on. Always appreciate it. Also, wherever you get your podcast, make sure to rate, review, listen, spread the word on Believe in Queens. We're doing great things here. A lot of fun stuff's coming out, I assure you. And Anthony, make sure to check out Anthony Recker, of course, on all your social media. Also, check him out. Of course, he's doing a lot of great things for MLB Network, Apple TV Plus for pre and post. So you're getting all different types of Mets coverage the way that I'm sure that Met, you Mets fans enjoy. But guys, that's going to do it. Thank you so much for watching and listening. For Anthony Recker and myself, Tyler Ward, this was episode 14, Believe in Queens. I'll see you guys all after this. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.